Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today, we are joined by Jason Trenner. He is the co-founder and CEO of Strategus Research Partners, and he is an expert when it comes to all things macro. In this episode, we get Jason's macroeconomic outlook, why he is cautious on the markets and the economy, the probability of a recession, his views on Fed policy, where he is seeing attractive opportunities in this environment, and where he sees the fair value for the markets. I really enjoyed having Jason on the show. I learned so much from him and I think you will too. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Jason Trenner of Strategus Research. Jason Trenner, co-founder and CEO of Strategus Research Partners. It is so great to see you again and it is great to welcome you on the show for the first time. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for uh, having me, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. And I really enjoyed our conversation at the beginning of the year at the Economic Club of New York. And I am so thrilled to introduce you to my audience, especially given your deep expertise and background in macro. So I would love to start there with the big picture. What is that macro view for you today? We can also cover in that question, we can cover the economy and of course, markets as well. Yeah, I think you know, and I have to say, it's, it's a perhaps it's a little bit of a foolish consistency on my part because I, I'm still quite cautious on the economy and on the markets, and and that that cautiousness and 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 bearishness really started in March of 2022, and of course, you know, sometimes in this business you get lucky in terms of timing, and we got quite lucky because that was right before the market, um, you know, started to decline. And we thought of ourselves as kind of geniuses uh, at the time. And then this year, you know, we're coming into this year and we're still cautious on the economy, of course, for reasons I'll, I'll talk about in a second. But uh, the markets clearly have uh, have strengthened quite a bit uh, with the S&P up about 15 and the NASDAQ up about 30. But uh, in the end, I, I still think if you're playing the odds, uh, you still have to expect uh, a recession sometime in the next six to 12 months. And that, of course, is it never particularly good for financial assets, uh, particularly risky assets like stocks. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because this is something that's been a little perplexing to me personally, is you point out um, the S&P and the NASDAQ just being up this year. Yet, I keep having these conversations and a lot of folks expect a recession. And so that's where it's perplexing to me. Like, why is there a disconnect? Like, why is the market going up when it seems like a lot of people are expecting a recession? Is that normal? Yeah, no, it's it's not particularly. I'm sure it's 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 not particularly normal, especially when the Fed has been tightening as aggressively as it has been. I would say that the basis for our our bearishness on the economy and, and ultimately on the markets is that um, the Fed. Uh, you generally never want to fight the Fed. The Fed ultimately wins, and inflation is still persistent. It's still well above uh, the Fed's own target of 2%, which means the Fed, in my opinion, is very unlikely to stop tightening. It's probably going to tighten another one or two times. There are significant lags. The the lags involved in monetary policy are, are long and variable. And so if you put those things together with the decline in corporate profits and an inverted yield curve, it's hard not to think that there's going to be a recession, or at least that's what the odds would tell you. But having said that, um, the economy has proved to be enormously resilient 
Uh, consumers still have a fair amount of cash uh, left over from COVID, uh, and corporations have a fair amount of cash as well. And so I, I think people are, it's a little bit like they say about second marriage is a little bit, I think, the, the triumph of hope over experience. And uh, people are kind of throwing caution to the winds. They're saying, you know, this this was all going to work out. Uh, and in my opinion, um, you know, it's a risky, it, it's possible it could work out. Uh, as an economist, I know I don't know. But I also think that uh, the chances are, are good that you're going to get a recession uh, in the next six to 12 months. I guess like where I'm still confused is like, why is the market gone up or um, do you th- does it have anything to do with, um, I mean, there are a few names that are kind of driving us pretty narrow when you think about like who the names are or does it have to do with indexing? Like I, I, when you step yeah, back. Yeah, no, I, I would say, yeah, no, I listen, I think those, uh, the companies and we call them the Magnificent Seven, like the old movie, right? Um, and it, it's the Apples and Microsofts and NVIDIAs and, and all those companies have, um, they have a couple of things going for them. One is that um, they're all uh, somewhat involved uh, or have some sort of tangential relationship with the potential for artificial intelligence and AI, which, which of course, increases their their appeal to people because that is it does have the possibility of being uh, revolutionary. Um, those companies also have a ton of cash on their balance sheets, which means they're less um, they are less susceptible to increases and they actually benefit from increases in interest rates uh, because their cash balances earn more money. So they're not as dependent upon the financial markets. Having said that, if you get away from those seven companies, which are trading at very, very high multiples, you're still looking at a lot of companies, 40% of the Russell 2000 as an example, uh, that have not had profits in the last 12 months. And that are largely geared towards uh, a, an environment in which that we had for 11 years, where you have close to zero percent interest rates or interest rates that are negative after inflation. And so that, to me, is what's changed meaningfully. And I, I think again, it, it's it's hard to bet on a market, in, in my opinion, that's this narrow and where those companies, those narrow group of companies, are so expensive. Yeah, I'm. I want to make sure I got that right. Did you say 40% of the Russell has not had profits in the last 12 months? That's right. It's 40% yeah. of the Russell 2000 and it's it's about it, it's about 40% of the Russell value. It's maybe 45% of the Russell growth. And of course that's very sustainable um that it, you know it doesn't seem like it would be sustainable but it's sustainable when you have this surfeit of of money that's been created by the Fed keeping interest rates uh so uh so low for so long. And people start looking for other alternatives when they can't get anything on their cash. Of course, that's changed now because um, most people can get a pretty decent return. You can buy a, a ten-year Treasury uh, note uh, for about four percent; that'll yield you four percent. You can buy a two-year Treasury note that will yield you something like five percent. And I would say, in my opinion, that's a pretty good. It's not a bad return, uh, risk-free return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to bring up with you today um, as we're recording, because when you're thinking about, um, you know, Fed policy, also thinking about um, just the economy in general, we got the CPI print today. Um, right. And uh, prices rose at a slower pace or at the slowest pace since uh, March of 2021. Uh, CPI rose 0.2% over the last month and 3% over the prior year in June. Um, what is, what, 
what was your reaction to the CPI print or how does that kind of factor into, um, you know, how you're thinking about more of the macro picture markets and whatnot? Right. So, well, the good news, right, is that a year ago, uh, July of a year ago, the CPI was up 9% uh, year over year, and now it's up 3% year over year. So the Fed should probably feel pretty good about itself that it's, it's tightening does seem to be working. Okay. Now there's also, um, the Fed also though pays a lot of attention to other measures of inflation. And in particular with the CPI, they take a look at something called core, which X's out uh, food uh, and energy. Okay. And right now that uh, that's growing at about 4.8%, that inflation rate, the core inflation rate. The Fed's target is about 2%. And so the good news is the Fed is, the Fed's tightening is doing its job. The bad news, it seems to me, is that the Fed is going to have to continue to stay tight uh, perhaps longer than people are expecting. Um, it wouldn't surprise us if you saw another uh, Fed tightening or two this year. Um, then the Fed should probably be pretty close to being finished. The hard part is that it's the Fed is still a long way away, in my opinion, from easing, or at least easing for a good reason. Uh, you know, if the Fed's easing at some point this year, it would very likely mean that something blew up a financial uh, financial institution or a bank or something where it was an emergency easing. Um, in terms of the Fed easing for good reasons, whereas they feel comfortable with the inflation rate, I would say that's probably still a good six months at a minimum uh, away. So financial conditions and monetary policy is, is likely to remain tight for some time. And that's that's kind of my impression. But it's, it's good news. We're moving in the right direction. But I'm not sure that um, you know vict- they can claim complete victory uh, just yet. Yeah. Yeah, and if you know, something breaks and what that could be and what that would look like. Um, so also just going back to your earlier remarks, being cautious and um, bearish on markets, cautious and bearish on the economy. Um, oftentimes when people talk about, are you bullish? Are you bearish? I kind of look at it as like more of a binary. I'm just kind of curious, like how you contextualize it. Um, maybe more of this bearish sentiment. If I don't even know if that question makes sense, but I'm just thinking maybe I don't know, like in, throughout your career, um, how you kind of contextualize that kind of assessment, that bearish outlook. Yeah. Well, listen, and I think you know, listen, the market, um, the odds are with you in being bullish, right? The market goes up roughly about seventy five percent of the time. And uh, the stock market and financial assets are not the economy. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I tend to think financial assets are a little bit countercyclical, uh, which means that you know the time you want to be buying stocks is actually when the economy is is weakening, uh, because that's when the Fed starts easing, and then you start to get um, you actually get good deals on stocks. You get buy stocks for reasonable prices. Right now, I would argue you're not really buying stocks at reasonable prices, and that's because the economy is still quite resilient. Uh, and uh, even though we're expecting a recession, the Lord only knows whether that'll happen. But in my opinion, you're not getting a lot of bargains in, in the market uh, right now. But I think um, there's, I just do think that, that to answer your question, I think it's important for everyone to remember, and we have to remind ourselves of this, that uh, the economy is not the market. 
the, the market or financial asset prices are largely driven by two things. One, for stocks at least, is really cash flows, future cash flows and expectations for earnings and interest rates. And that's about it, um, really, you know, theoretically over time, that's what uh, the value of a stock or the market uh, should should be. And, and in my opinion, uh, those things don't add up to a market that's trading at 20 times earnings uh, as it is right now. That seems a little rich to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Just pointing out that um, you're not necessarily buying stocks right now at um, reasonable prices. So I guess like, how are you thinking about, um, like, how are you thinking about opportunities in this environment or positioning or positioning or like what, what is particularly attractive to you? Cause it sounds like maybe in the event of a recession, there could be some buying opportunities. I think so. I, I think, listen, I, I think in particular that my, my favorite sector, and I know it's not particularly, it's not, may not be that politically correct, or it may not be that popular, but I actually like energy quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and I know it seems counterintuitive, um, given our expectations for a recession, but I do think that the, um, the energy companies are much more disciplined in terms of their uses of cash and, and managing their balance sheets uh, than they have been in the past. They're much more shareholder friendly, which is to say that they're they're less willing to punch holes in the ground in Texas or, uh, or as opposed to actually only doing that when it makes financial sense. And in, in the interim, actually providing cash to shareholders in the form of dividends or, or share repurchases. So I and I think I feel very strongly that the, the need for energy, uh, the need for you know kind of your your standard um, carbon-based energy fossil fuels is going to be with us for a very, very long time. There's still a billion people on the planet that have never been able to use fossil fuels. Um, it's important to remember that. And and so um uh there I don't think they're going to switch you know directly go directly from no no energy to solar panels or um, electric vehicles or something. So there's still a fair amount of pent up demand for for uh, energy, and and those companies I think are generating a lot of cash. I think that's that that's very uh, that's very interesting. I think there's probably some opportunities in financials as well, um, and um, certainly the yield curve right now is not helping. But if we're correct and the Fed is in a position to actually start lowering rates at some point next year, uh, if a recession comes to pass, those companies should do uh, pretty well. And again, there, I think what you're really focusing on is quality, particularly the largest banks are, are really fortresses. Uh, they're, um, they're in much better position than they were uh, to deal with a recession in 2008, uh, 2009. And so those companies look interesting to me. The big question really is, of course, technology, which is almost 30% of the market. And um, there, I would just say you have to be careful. Um, and I understand why people are in love with these companies. In many cases, those that Magnificent Seven that we talked about, in many cases, they're close to monopolies. They generate a ton of cash. But also, ultimately, um, th- there are limits in terms of uh, when a company is a good investment. It may be a great company, but it may not be a great investment based on what you're paying for the stock. And and that's my fear about the technology sector right now. Yeah. You mentioned AI earlier. Um, What are your thoughts on the kind of AI um, craze of late? Listen, it's uh, if... um, 
if you're more of a short-term trader or short-term oriented, um, I certainly wouldn't short any of those companies. Um, it, they're certainly, the fad is still very much in place and it may not be a fad. It may be indeed revolutionary uh, for business practices over the long term. I, I feel pretty strongly though that we're not going to know that for a couple of years. That that um, and and that's where the maybe the disconnect I might have uh, may be is that this is something that is still relatively new. Uh, it it certainly has the potential to upend business uh, and increase uh, profit margins uh, for a lot of companies. But there's also a lot of other externalities that that both policymakers and society are going to have to deal with when it comes to AI. And so I, I'm not convinced it's going to be a straight a path perhaps as other people uh, are. Uh, there's going to uh, there's going to be a, a long-term coming before all of the the benefits of AI can be fully uh, be fully realized in my in my estimation. Yeah. Are there any other themes that you're thinking about or do you want to be more in cash at the moment too? Like what are what are some of the other Yeah, I mean we have we actually we have two ETFs. Uh one is the Stratego Strategus Macro Thematic Opportunities Fund, and one is the Strategus Global Um Policy Opportunities Fund. And one is focused on thematic rotation, uh, where we focus on certain themes and we rotate among the themes, and the other is focused, for lack of a better term, on lobbying. Uh, on companies that are very efficient at lobbying uh, the government. Uh, on the macro thematic opportunities theme, the, the biggest themes that we have are, one is uh, cash flow aristocrats. So we, we want to focus on companies that are not particularly dependent uh, upon the financial markets uh, to generate, uh, to, to be able to grow. They, ge they generate enough cash to grow organically. So that would be a company like Microsoft, as an example, is a big, big player in there. Another one we have is uh, deglobalization. And uh, we're, we're very much of the view, sadly, in a way, uh, that the, the economy is not going to be as globalized as it was before the pandemic. Uh, maybe, maybe ever. Uh, or certainly it's going to take a long time to go back to where we were before the pandemic. And, and that means we have a higher concentration uh, to uh, some energy companies that we talked about before. We also have a higher concentration to defense companies, aerospace and defense companies, because we think that we're going into a multipolar world in, in which many, many countries are going to focus on building up their own defenses and spending on their own uh, militaries, but um, it seems to be very difficult, in my opinion, to go back to where we were uh, in the past. Yeah, I want to hear more um, on the globalization theme and some of the implications. Uh, I, I take it you all spent a lot of time on this. I just want to flesh that out a bit more um, because that that is interesting to sure. me, like what that could mean um, for folks. Yeah, well, I think listen, um, you know, globalization. Um, of course, of, of the economy is never it's no it's not always popular, uh, but if it's done in the right way in the in the uh, under the basis of, of free trade, uh, generally everyone is better off over time. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of uh, a lot of workers and a lot of industries can get displaced, so it's not always popular. But the big move towards deglobalization, um, or excuse me, towards globalization in the economy, of course, started when. Uh, the Berlin Wall came down in, in 1989, and then uh, China joined the WTO 
in 2001, and that really kind of put globalization on, on steroids. One of the great hopes of globalization is that it would make non-Western countries more Western uh, in terms of the way they treated their people and the way they dealt with other countries. And I would say that uh, without getting too ethnocentric about it, um, it, it doesn't seem if you're looking at Russia or China today that um, that that great hope of globalization has really panned out. Um, I would say it's it's it would be hard to claim that the, these countries have become uh, more Western. And so um, it, it also globalization, be, because uh, particularly given our relationship with China, where we allowed them to peg their own currency, uh, I also feel very strongly that the relationship we had with China was not free trade in any way. And so while it resulted in us being able to get much cheaper um, consumer goods, it also kind of kneecapped the middle class uh, and uh, did so much more quickly than it would have happened um, um, as, 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 without uh, China being part of the WTO. So this is a long-winded way of saying, I think there's gonna be a big movement uh, to uh, do more onshoring of, of businesses in the United States, or at least do more friendshoring, where we're gonna be focused on doing more of our production uh, on uh, in supply chains that are much more reliable uh, and with people and with countries that would have our own values, um, would, have, would have values that are much closer to our own. The, the problem, the only problem with that, I would say, is that it's gonna be more expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, flat panel screens are going to be more expensive. Maybe tube stocks will be more expensive. You know, anything that you buy will be probably a little more expensive than it would have been when you were kind of outsourcing all of your production to China. On the good news part is you're going to bring jobs home. Uh, you're not going to be dependent on a country like China um, for uh, certain very important goods. Um, and um uh, again, it, it would be nice if the world were a bit different, but it's just the way it is. And I, I think as an American, I, I frankly, I think it's a good, I, I think ultimately it's a good thing. It's worth the price uh, that we're going to pay in terms of higher inflation uh, to be more self-reliant. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, it would bring more jobs back. I do want to bring up the labor market with you and you know, kind of delve into your views there, your thesis there. How are you thinking about the labor side of things? Well, so it, labor market right now, the unemployment rate is about 3.6%, which um, uh, I'm a lot older than you are. But, you know, when I when I started the business, uh, you know, uh, 6% was seen as full employment. And so 3.6% was seen as kind of otherworldly. 3.6% is uh, labor markets are extremely, extremely tight. One of the reasons why I'm a little bit more cautious on the economy is that it, it's hard to see a new cycle developing when the unemployment rate is so low. Uh, usually what, what sets the stage for a new cycle developing uh, is that the unemployment rate is somewhat high and there's slack uh, in the labor markets. And so right now the um, in, inflation is largely dependent, can be dependent upon uh, the labor markets. And I would, ar- I would argue that to the extent to which profits peaked uh, three quarters ago and to the extent to which bank lending standards are tightening, uh, it seems likely to me that the unemployment rate, unfortunately, is is going to move higher. Uh, most small businesses are dependent upon um, are dependent upon 
bank loans uh, for capital, and bank lending standards are clearly uh, tightening right now. I'd also say that to the extent to which profits are, are uh, have peaked, uh, that's also something where I think companies are going to start to look at their, their labor force and try to determine whether it, it's the right size for uh, what appears to be a, a slowing economy. Yeah. As it relates to like a slowing economy or even like your views on a recession, I think the last time we talked, um, I probably asked you if you were in the hard landing camp. Um, I think at some point there was a discussion of like a no landing or soft land, obviously soft landing, no landing. Yeah. Um, where do you stand on that today? Well, listen, I think <clears throat> my 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 own opinion is it's either going to be a soft landing or a hard landing. That the the no landing category I think is highly unlikely. And that's largely because of what we were discussing before, which is the the idea that it's hard to have the economy running at this rate uh, and have the Fed also just sit on its hands or start easing. And so the the issue is that the Fed is likely to remain monetary policy is likely to remain tighter for longer, perhaps, than people are thinking, which means that you're going to have a landing of some sort. Um, the question really on the hard landing or soft landing depends on whether depends on policy, uh, depends on whether we make things worse, uh, depends also a little bit uh, on on luck. Uh, my opinion right now is that probably the best um, the best guess I would have is some sort of soft landing in 2024, which mean a recession, but not a recession that would be anything like the global financial crisis we saw in 2008, 2009. The reason why I believe that is that banks are in much better condition than they were then. They would they would face some losses. They they would uh, they would tighten lending standards, but you're not going to have the kind of existential questions that you had in 2008, 2009 about the entire banking system, mm -hmm. uh, even if the economy slows from here. How about the regional banks? I mean, there was a lot of uh, chatter and talk, especially on this show um, after the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Signature Bank, um, and others. Uh, do you see that as still kind of a lingering risk, more of like the regionals, or are we past that? I do. I, I do see that as a risk, uh, and that's because they're a little bit. Those regional banks are a little bit closer to some of the some of the problems, uh, which means that they're a little bit closer to some of the the their the borrowers that may have the most trouble uh, in a period in which the cost of capital is higher, uh, and and among companies that not, can't necessarily access the capital markets through private equity or the public markets. And so the the you know unfortunately you're probably getting going to get into a situation where the big banks are going to get bigger uh and more healthy uh but the regional banks are going to be left with dealing with some of the issues particularly in let's say commercial real estate uh or other parts of of the economy where um they'll feel the full brunt of of a recession. And so um, we have a lot of banks in the United States. I, I view that as a positive thing. It may not be the most efficient thing, but I, I tend to view that as a strength uh, of, of the U.S. rather than a weakness. Uh, but I, I would, if I were putting money to work in financials, I'd be skewing it more towards higher capitalization, larger capitalization uh, companies, uh, banks in, in the sector. Yeah. Um, hence, like why financials was like an appealing 
um, area. Also, um, you mentioned energy too, and I should have, uh, maybe when you were talking about it, asked you some follow-ons, but do you have any sort of like outlook for, um, you know, energy commodities, um, oil, is that something you, you put out there? Or, yeah. 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 So I think, listen, I, I think that, um, people are, so in, in 2021 and 2022, the energy sector was the best performing sector by far. There wasn't anything even close to it. And this year it's been the worst performing sector, but it hasn't been a disaster. You know, it's, it's down maybe after being up, you know, over, I would think it was up roughly 50% in each of the last two years, it's maybe down 12% this year. So uh, it's taking a breather. But as I said before, one of the reasons why I'm pretty bullish on, on the sector and the, and the, um, is that the, the companies themselves, companies that produce oil, at least in the United States, are much more disciplined about, uh, about pumping for oil and are much more disciplined about making sure that the price stays within a certain level that renders them profitable. And, and that hasn't always been the case in the energy sector, to be honest with you, for you know a good portion of my lifetime. Uh, energy companies were not particularly well managed with, in that regard and, and tended to uh, have the money burn a hole in their pockets. And every time energy prices spiked, they would tend to spend it on capital spending. And this time they're not doing that. Now, of course, it's a global market uh, and you have OPEC plus uh, that are, are making attempts to try to clamp down on the supply of energy uh, in the market. But there's also a fair amount of cheating that's going on uh, as well. But uh, you put all that together, though, in my opinion, uh, and especially given the, my view of kind of a, a softer landing, I still think that the energy companies are very attractive for investors because the companies are generating a ton of cash. The dividend yields are very, very attractive. And you're essentially paid to wait uh, for those companies to, uh, to do better. So to me, I, I like energy quite a bit. One of the other things that's happening right now is that the dollar is weakening. And so the dollar weakening tends to uh, put a floor uh, in the price of commodities, uh, not, not just energy, but other commodities as well. Materials and, and, and commodities are, are intriguing um, because, um, you know, normally you would not want to buy these companies if you're expecting a recession in the U.S. One of the things that's happening that's a bit different is that there's enormous demand for some of these commodities because of the electric vehicle boom. And electric vehicles, I think, prior, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, are not particularly green. Uh, they use enormous amounts of extractive materials uh, to build them uh, and, you know, copper, cobalt, all the rest of it. And, and so if, if uh, the, the powers that be are insistent on, on producing a lot more electric vehicles, there's going to be a much bigger demand for, for commodities as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Also, just like on the oil um, front, you pointed out earlier that, you know, I mean, the way I kind of interpret it is like, you're going to need these fossil fuels kind of as a bridge to get you to a place where the alternatives would be even viable at scale. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's only really if you're looking at, let's say, EV is probably the easiest way to talk about it. Um, but um, listen, um, the, the only reason why those 
you're, you're selling a fair amount of electric vehicles is because governments are subsidizing them. Uh, and of course, the great irony is that, you know, I don't know too many working class or middle class people that drive Teslas. I mean, you know, the, 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 the subsidies, the subsidies are generally going to wealthy people that can afford to buy a $75,000 automobile. And so, um, and as I said before, I'm, I'm also extremely skeptical uh, that these uh, that electric vehicles are particularly green in any way. Uh, there, there may be green at the tailpipe after they've been produced, uh, but the manufacture of them is, uh, again, highly dependent upon things you have to pull out of the ground. And so, um, but this is something that um, kind of the, uh, the uh, global elite wants. They, they view it as a silver bullet. Um, I'm very skeptical about that, but uh, but I also would say that you know to be honest with you, it's, there's not going to be a lot to stop it anytime soon unless there are political changes. Yeah, well, I love my diesel engine. I got to say, so <laughs> I do. Um, you mentioned also um, you all the way you all have these um, ETFs, correct? Right. And That's you right. had these them- you do like thematic rotations. I also heard you say that you're focused on lobbying, specifically companies that are efficient in lobbying. That's fascinating to me. Can I hear more on that? Sure. So the, the and the two, I should just give you the two symbols. That's SAMT, which is the Macrothematic Opportunities Fund, which uh, we rotate the themes. And it's SAGP, which is the the for again, for lack of a better term, the lobbying. Uh, we call it policy opportunities, but it's essentially looking at companies uh, that are very efficient at lobbying government. Now, I have to say, as a free market person, uh, there's a part of me that's not thrilled uh, that this strategy works as well as it does. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it does work. And I would argue the reason why it works is that as the size of government grows, um, being able to maneuver the levers of government becomes a very important management skill. And, and generally speaking, you know, the biggest beneficiaries of large government uh, generally tend to be large companies uh, because they have the resources, they have the lobbyists, they have the lawyers, the accountants, the consultants uh, to help uh, them influence government in writing the laws in their favor. Uh, and that could mean either getting in front of a big government contract, uh, or it could mean also avoiding some sort of regulation that would hurt their bottom line. And so it's an unfortunate reality um, uh, of modern life, uh, but it's also an extremely important management skill. Uh, I went to college in in uh, Washington, D.C. I went to Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, when I was there many years ago, uh, it was kind of a quaint town. You know, it was it certainly wasn't you wouldn't call it a wealthy town. Uh, but right now, uh, Washington, D.C. is one of the wealthiest cities in the United States. Nine of the 20 wealthiest counties are either in or around Washington, D.C. And, and that's in a in a town that really has no industry. You know, it's the, the industry is government. And so the reason why it's so wealthy is because there are a lot of highly educated people there. Uh, that are there largely to influence the way laws are written. And so, um, again, I'm not thrilled about that, but that's that's we have to play the ball. It's lies. That's that's 
the way it is. Yeah, play the ball as the lies and clearly spotting an opportunity. Did you? When did you have that realization that that was like? I got to say, I think you might be the first person I've heard, and I'm sure it's not. The, I'm sure maybe you're not the only one that expressed this as like a theme. Or I'm, I totally missed it, and like others do this too. But when did you have that realization? Yeah, and this is the brainchild of the head of our Washington office. Uh, it was a fellow by the name of Dan Clifton, who is an absolute rock star, and he's got a great team in Washington D.C. But he had this uh, epiphany, if you will, probably more than ten years ago. And then we um, we we started actually managing money uh, through separately managed accounts and and institutional accounts in this regard. Uh, and now we've created the an exchange traded fund so that just your average um, individual investor could actually uh, enjoy the the benefits of this this fund as well. But Dan has been on this as, as a Washington animal, somebody who you know worked in Washington his whole life. Uh, he, he saw this very clearly and, and developed his own models to, to determine how much companies are spending uh, on lobbying and, and how efficient they are and how those dollars are being spent. Mm-hmm. And I, to my knowledge, I don't believe there's another fund out there that that does that it, they're they're very they're very very well may be one but i uh, i know we were the first and i don't think there is another one out there well you're definitely the first i've heard of and i was like maybe i'm missing out and i, I don't know but that's i doubt okay, it you seem pretty up to speed uh julia on on on, on everything okay. So. um okay i want to ask another question because i wrote this down and i've always wanted to ask you um because you mentioned you all are the first i believe you all were the first to use the term Tina, there is no alternative. Is that correct? That is correct. That is, um, you know, we, we were the first to use it in the financial market. So I, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal in 2013 uh, that was entitled Wall Street and the Tina Factor. And and uh, now Tina as an acronym, which stands for there is no alternative, had been around before I use it for the financial markets, but it was used in a political sense. And it was first used by, um, uh, well, with regard to Margaret Thatcher. And, and Margaret Thatcher, when she came to power in the 70s uh, in the UK, um, she was famous for saying, you know, the problem with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. And so she went on a very big campaign to privatize a lot of British businesses uh, because uh, the British government could no longer afford it. And when people would give her a hard time about it, she would simply say, there is no alternative. And she said it so frequently that she was nicknamed Tina. Mm. Now, uh, so fast forward a number of years. And then one of the things that was very apparent to me when the Fed started quantitative easing and was was pegging rates at close to zero, it was very clear to me among our clients that are big pension plans or endowments or or um plans that need to generate a certain amount of return, what was clear was that the Fed was creating a TINA environment in which if you had to generate five, six, seven percent to make your pension plan work or or to distribute to your um, uh, uh, to your grantees or something, you had to go into equities. There was no alternative because there was there was no way to get it in fixed income. And so we we were the first to use it in the financial markets. Yeah. Um, 
Um, do you still? Oh, do you still? Okay, is it still Tina today? Like, there's no other alternative, or what? Well, is, there are other. Now, you know, now yeah, there what are is many, the alternative today? <laughs> yeah, the alternative today, or you know, as I said before, you can, you know, there, there. It's one thing when interest rates are zero, right? Which they were for a long period of time, or like cash was, you know, if you just had a savings account for 12 years, the average person was getting zero on their savings account. Right now, um, if you're buying CDs or you buy to your treasury yields, you know, to your treasuries, you can get 5%. So there are many other alternatives uh, now. And that's that's another reason why I would say people should be somewhat careful about the stock market, just because, uh, again, you can get a risk-free rate of return um, with a pretty decent with a pretty decent interest rate that has really not been available for many, many years, really since the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, yeah. when the Fed started quantitative easing. Yeah. Well, speaking of the market, and I know that you're, you are bearish and cautious on it. Do you, and I, and you don't have to answer this question. Do you all put out like price targets? Do you have a price target or anything in mind on like how how you're thinking about the market? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, we try to stay away from the price targets because we know that they'll inevitably be wrong. Okay, mm -hmm. so we, we do try to put out kind of ranges, and so, and and I have to say, wait, now I'm looking at the S and P 500 right now. Let's just use round numbers just to make everything easy. Um, let's say the S and P 500 is trading at about 4,400 right now. In my opinion, the 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 fair value of the S&P 500 is lower. It's somewhere probably between 3,500 and uh, maybe 4,100 or something along those lines. To me, that would be more reasonable. And the reason and the way I get there is that we have a forecast for earnings. We do forecast earnings for the S&P 500. We're forecasting earnings uh, next year to be below $200 for S&P 500 operating earnings. And we think multiples on those earnings should be somewhere between 17 at the highest 18 times earnings. And so that's what gives us kind of that that fair value for the stock market uh, of around 3,500 to 4,500. Got it. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. And I know we only have a couple minutes and I was just kind of picking up a few things just about you in this conversation. Um, I believe you uh, co-founded Strategus in 2006. You mentioned That's right. going to Georgetown. Um, you all have offices in New York and in DC. But Jason, I was kind of hoping maybe you could learn. We could learn just a bit more about you. Like, how did you get into markets, economics? What was that for you that made you kind of want to pursue this career? Oh, that's a kind, you know, it's, um, to, to the extent to which anyone's interested, it's, it's a flattering question. But, you know, it's it's funny because I went to uh, college with the idea that I would I was going to work for the CIA. I wanted to work for the CIA or, or in the Foreign Service. And um, and it's ironic because I can't keep a secret and I like to talk. And so that, that would have been horrible. But to make a long story short, um uh, I went to school in the late 80s, college in the late 80s, and I I've, I basically just fell in love with the financial markets because if you're a news junkie like me, um, it's one of the more intellectually interesting businesses you can find, right? So, and I, so I spent, even just on my free time, probably to my detriment psychologically, I spent a lot of time looking at the news and seeing what's happening. And the nice thing about the financial markets, in my opinion, is that almost everything can have some sort of um, financial market implication, 
or um, investment implication. And that's what makes it fun. And uh, it's especially fun when the markets are moving and you can help clients and, and, and understand things uh, and provide some value to them. So I, uh, I love the markets, you know, it's, it really is, is really, it's a, um, uh, you know, calling is a strong word has religious overtones, but it's kind of my, it, it's very much what uh, I think I was meant to do. And, uh, I still love it and, uh, not looking to stop anytime soon. I love that. And you can totally call it your calling. I love that. And um, I feel like people should feel that way about the work that they do. And I can I can sense that from talking to you. Um, Jason, I have to say, I've really enjoyed having you on. I do want to give you a few moments if you want to share where folks can um, maybe follow you or learn more about the work that you all do or any parting thoughts that you have for the audience. Please take a moment to do so. Sure. I would encourage you. And of course, I'm the worst at, at social media. Uh, I, I do have a Twitter account, but they don't allow me to access it. But uh, but you, you can look on online, www.strategusrp.com. And then there's uh, www.strategusetfs.com, uh, where you could learn more about our ETFs. And, and we're not hard to find. As Deion Sanders says, you know, we're, we're you know, we're, if you look on the Internet, uh, you look up my name or our company's name, you'll you'll find a lot about us and what we're up to uh, here. And, and we would greatly encourage everyone to do that. I love that. Well, Jason Trenner, CEO and co-founder of Strategus Research Partners, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas and helping all of us get smarter. Really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a great privilege. Thanks. Anytime. Thanks, Jason.